Hello, my name is Katherine Moore, social worker, mom, coffee lover, and founder of Social Workers Rise, where we inspire social workers to connect, expand their knowledge, and change more lives than they ever thought possible. I'm so excited you found my podcast. We will talk everything social work on every level from micro to macro. We will hear the stories of social workers who are doing big things, learn new skills, and most importantly, give you actionable steps to make a difference today. Let's go. Hello, welcome to another episode of Social Workers Rise. It is your host, Catherine here, and I'm so excited to have you here for another amazing episode of Social Workers Rise. Today we are hearing from Samantha Carter, who is a survivor of the grooming process. And don't worry, if you first thought of grooming a dog, that is not what we're talking about. (laughs) I wasn't very familiar with this topic either, but it makes complete sense. And she is going to go into details about what this is. So I must give you a trigger warning if you have any kind of experiences with childhood sexual abuse. This may be a little difficult to to listen to. We don't go into too much detail, but I just wanted to give you the heads up. If you are working with children in any capacity, teenagers or even families, or if you have children of your own, nieces and nephews that you're close with, then this is the episode for you. She's going to talk about what are the warning signs that we need to look out for, what does that grooming process look like, and what can we do to intervene or stop it? How are we going to respond if we know that this is happening? She also talks about her book that she has coming out. The link is in the bio. Definitely, definitely get the book because it is really a piece of art. So with that, we're going to listen to this short ad on the Rise directory and hop into the episode. This episode is proudly brought to you by the Rise Directory, a national directory of clinical supervisors who are dedicated to helping the next generation of clinical social workers grow in their clinical skills. The link is in the show notes. Check it out and tell every clinical supervisor you know about this directory. Welcome to the Social Workers Rise podcast. Hi, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to hearing about you and your story and how you were able to turn some really, really bad experiences into good to help others and using your social work skills to help you do that. So I'm really excited that you're here. Um, can you just give us a brief overview of you know who you are and your story? Absolutely, Catherine. So my name is Samantha. I actually just got married, so you might see my name as Samantha Leonard. But I congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but I'm now Samantha Carter, which is very exciting. I am a social worker. I graduated this May. And I'm working on getting my L 
to have my LCSW. So I'm actually from New Jersey. So I grew up in a town called Robbinsville. And when I was a young girl, I experienced the grooming process from someone that lived in my town. And I'll go into more of what I mean when I say I experienced the grooming process, but I now consider myself a survivor. And after going through that experience where I was sexually groomed into a relationship with an older man in my community, I ended up going through uh, years and years of court battles trying to bring justice to the situation. Um, And unfortunately, after about four or five years of going through that process, my perpetrator was found not guilty Mm. so that was something that was something that was a big part of my childhood and I don't consider it something that defines me but I do consider it a gift now that I'm able to connect with others on that topic and have a heightened sense of empathy for people going through hard times so I really see it as something that shaped who I am And I was given the opportunity during college to actually write a book about the grooming process to educate others on the experience um, and get to share a little bit of different survivors that I interviewed story as well as my own. So in 2019, I published my book, Groomed, and it goes through the six stages of the sexual grooming process which are selecting a victim, gaining trust, filling a need, isolating the victim, and then sexualizing the relationship and finally maintaining control. So the book goes through these stages from the child's perspective. So it can be very triggering for someone to read especially if they've experienced this or they have a young child of their own or have experienced any sexual trauma Um, but it does give a good idea of why the child is acting in the ways that they are and why they might not tell anyone and why they may never tell anyone for their entire life Mm. so so what my mission is definitely Sorry, I just have a question. What do you mean when you say the grooming process? Because I'm not, I'm, I'm not like uh, in that particular industry. I know a little bit about human trafficking um, and sexual assault. Is that what we're talking about? Or can you just clarify for me? Yeah, absolutely. So Um, it's not a hygiene routine for a dog, (laughs) which is, I think, what we often think of when we think of of grooming, Um, but it's actually the deliberate process that offenders use to gradually initiate and maintain sexual relationships with children, and this Mm. is done in secrecy. Mm, Okay, so someone is manipulating a child to have a sexual relationship with them is that right absolutely grooming allows offenders to overcome natural boundaries long before the sexual abuse occurs Mm, okay that helps to clarify okay thank you 
So uh, another, uh, uh, something that might help clarify too is going through these stages. So the first stage is selecting a victim. So this is where the offender will look for some vulnerable qualities in a child. And this could be anything from there being a death in the family, a child having low self-esteem, there being a single family household, and the offender looks to this as an opportunity. And it is not until the sexualizing the relationship phase phase that anything sexual occurs. In my research, um, while writing the book, I interviewed survivors all over the world, and I found that it took an average of 15 months between the selecting of a victim and the sexualizing of, of the relationship, which means that we have 15 months to spot red flags and pick up on these stages and intervene before the sexual abuse occurs. Oh, that's, um, I mean, it's good, but I'm also thinking like, wow, they're really dedicated, I mean, to, to making this happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. These offenders are skilled in grooming not just the child, but the entire community. So they're manipulating the parents, they're manipulating the institutions, becoming trustworthy figures, figures with prominence in the community. So no one is thinking that this is a person that's going to do such a thing. Oh, that's creep. That makes it creepier. Oh my gosh. <laughs> okay, so go on. <laughs> Um, the case I often think of uh, that most people have heard of is the Larry Nassar case, right? So we, we know that Larry Nassar was a uh, physician for women in the Olympics, and mm. he sexually perpetrated on hundreds of girls, but he had he maintained a status in the community. And it was over the course of years that this happened. But people did not want to believe that that was something that was happening, which is Often what keeps things quiet for so long because people have a hard time accepting it and they're shamed into secrecy. I see. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then you were, talk- you were talking about the, the, the stages? Right, right. So I mentioned selecting a victim So, um, and how that's often a vulnerable victim, someone that has some need that the offender can kind of fill for Mm -hmm. that child. So um, after they select the victim, they'll start to gain their trust. So if that could be that they are offering them rides, they are uh, talking to them privately, getting to know things they like, remembering important things, things that you would think would just be what a healthy relationship might be. Mm -hmm. They might just be things that someone that's really interested in you would do. You feel kind of flattered. You feel like, wow, I'm special. That's how the child is feeling. Mm -hmm. And they kind of, they like this feeling. And it gets really confusing because then the boundaries start to break down. And so the child's knowing, oh, these boundaries are breaking down. This is wrong. But this person makes me feel good. 
And so that's a really confusing feeling for a child to have and a very shameful feeling of I like something that the world is telling me, right, is not okay. Um, And so after the perpetrator gains trust, um, which may happen in secrecy as well, which is where the child could start to feel like, hmm, I'm not supposed to be in secret with this person, but they're really nice. They start to fill a need. So this could be a financial need, an emotional need. It could be gifts. It could be affection. Um, it could be as simple as helping the the parents with something like bringing in the groceries or something like that. They start to establish themselves as a normal part of the family and they the child starts to see them around their caregivers and they're like, oh, well, my caregivers like this person too. Mm. Uh, right. So it is, it's very manipulative. It's very deliberate. Um, and after they fill that need, they start to isolate the victim. So now they, they really have a special bond with, with the victim at that point. Mm-hmm. And they are able to start to demonize people in that person's life and let them know like well your parents like wouldn't like if they knew what was going on like they don't really know what's good for you or like these friends you have they might not really like our relationship so really like it's not great to spend time with them or even making up blatant lies about other people to kind of isolate them from friends and family and at this point the victim really starts to lead somewhat of a double life where they're speaking with this person individually and not telling anyone about it and and continuing on in their daily life Mm -hmm. Um, it's oftentimes when the victim is taken out of their normal situation like say they go on vacation and they don't have access to their perpetrator that families start to notice hmm something's up here they're away from this person uh so that is one red flag to look out for so wait sorry I just want to clarify so when you go like when the family gets them away from the perpetrator um how do they like what would be different? What would be the red flag? Are they missing the perpetrator? Are they trying to talk to them? Are they isolating? Are they acting different? Good question. So they could be trying to talk to the perpetrator. Absolutely. A lot of grooming uh, survivors that I've talked to have had additional phones, like prepaid phones, cell phones, they talk to their perpetrator on. So parents sometimes will find those. They Um, they may act different. They may not be able to regulate because they're used to regulating with their perpetrator. And you may find that they are fixated on that person or they get pretty secretive when that person comes up. Um, Or you're noticing that they they have items that you don't know where they came from that could be gifts or money. And you're suspecting maybe it came from the perpetrator okay okay and when you say regulate are you talking about regulating their emotions yeah yeah absolutely because typically perpetrators will become their main like 
way of coping through talking to them and that's how they feel like they're okay because they I make see. them feel like they're, they're not okay and they're not loved when they're not with that person. I see. Okay. That makes sense. Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for, for the questions. Um, so the next stage is sexualizing the relationship. Now, many of the survivors I've talked to have described this often starts with pornography and desensitizing children to the naked human body where the perpetrator will ask them to first sit on their lap so they're desensitizing them to a little bit of touch there and then they're asking them to to look at this picture or to watch this video and just start getting them used to the, the the naked human body and from there that's where some of that sexual touching will begin and again this on average takes about 15 months from the survivors that I've talked to mm-hmm. um, and after that is the maintaining control phase so this is where the survivor feels so shamed into secrecy by what's gone on and they feel like they have taken an active role they feel like it is their fault and they again feel that well this feels good this person does nice things for me so I don't want to get them in trouble so it's a very twisted shameful feeling that the survivor is having at that point and makes it very difficult to have the survivor feel safe enough to come forward, especially if they've been successfully isolated. So it's very confusing to the child and it's really confusing to the the legal system as well, where the child's not talking about it and all these things kind of go under the rug as well. So that's why I feel it's really important to have more education on this topic so that people can kind of know the things to look for and know like these things really do happen. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. And I can see that it's important for, for social workers and parents and people in the community to just be aware that, that grooming is a thing. Because honestly, before you contacted me, I didn't know much about grooming specifically. I knew like in the human trafficking context where they're then going to like kidnap them and take them away. Um, but this is something completely different because they're still living in in the same community, but it's all happening. So the so it's not as blatant as as kidnapping, right? So it's definitely more subtle, and I would imagine is happening a lot more than than we even realize. Absolutely, Catherine. I was shocked to learn while I was writing my book that. The statistic now is is that one in 10 children will be sexually abused by the time they turn 18. And 93% of those children will know their abuser. So it's not oh people, it's not, it's not often people kidnapping people. It's often people in the communities. That just gave me chills because I'm thinking this, um, if you have a high school class, let's say of 30 students, three kids in each class, you know, would have experienced sexual assault by the time they're 18. And gosh, it's heartbreaking. It is. It is heartbreaking. But there's definitely, I think, if, if social work could focus on healing, um, 
in communities, I think it would go uh, really far because unfortunately, these groomers are, um, they're like chameleons, like they blend right into your community and they run away when the light is shined on them. So they're very hard to catch. And I think just talking about this and letting people come out and heal um, is is some of the best work that we can do for survivors. And of course, watching out for, for red flags to prevent these things from happening. Um, mm-hmm. but, also, but also knowing that we're all doing the best we can. Right, right. Are there specific red flags that we should be looking out for? So there are red flags um, to look out for. A lot of the red flags have to do with like gifts coming home. If your child is becoming secretive or irritable, pushing you out of their life. And, and I realize when I start to state these, it sounds like a normal teenager. So that's where <laughs> there's a lot of overlap with what teenagers experience as normal development. And well, that also could be grooming. Um, but I think it's just really important to know the people and the adults in your children's lives and to set boundaries with them. And if those boundaries are not being followed, that needs to be followed up on, right? Like if there's a boundary that this person isn't allowed to drive your kid home, but they they keep kind of doing it, it's like, okay, well, you're not allowed it to be in my child's life anymore. And we need to kind of follow up on this. Mm-hmm. Most adults, if, if a boundary is set, they will follow that boundary. So I think right. that that's something important to to try to be conscious of in your children's life. Um, I wish I could give, you know, like an exact science of how to figure it out. But the only thing I would add is to just continue to have open conversations about like the human body with your children, because if they don't have the language to tell you what's going on, then they really can't tell you what's going on. So starting those sex education talks really early, even if it's just talking about the names of your your body parts, is is really important to give kids that language to tell you what's going on. Right, definitely. And it can be uncomfortable as a parent, but definitely not as uncomfortable as learning, you know, something has happened and, um, and questioning, like, is there something I could have done? Because, you know, it's not the parent's fault. It's not the kid's fault. It's the perpetrator's fault. But we do want to, it sounds like we do want to really be cautious and aware of everything that we could possibly do to prepare our kids in case this were to happen. And also to, to just know what to be looking out for. um, So that we can, I would, I'm thinking of myself as a mom, so that I can just keep that conversation open and the lines of communication open with my daughter, if there's something that I'm concerned about, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And Catherine, I'm so glad you said that it's not the parent's fault because you're so right. It's never the parent's fault. It's always the perpetrator's fault. And the parents have been groomed by the perpetrator just like the child is. So when they find out what's going on, they feel the same betrayal and hurt that the the child is feeling as well. 
That makes sense. Yeah. Because I, I want to protect my child and I think that this is a safe person because they've been around for gosh, 15 months, almost two years. Um, you know, you know them and to find out that something like this happened, just, Oh, it would be heartbreaking. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's, yeah, it's never the parent's fault or the child's fault. Right. So there was a, a moment in your book, you know, where there was a scene of self-disclosing to a counselor and, um, and talking about, you know, responding, like how to respond to someone who discloses this to you. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so uh, you're asking just generally about disclosure and like how to respond to someone who discloses? Exactly, yeah. Someone comes to you or you've been called to talk to a kid um, as a social worker, you know, what do you do? What do you say? How do you respond? Absolutely. Um, Well, as a survivor, the first thing that comes to mind is that I... I always disliked when people responded with anger. And that's a really common reaction is that people were angry at the perpetrator. And that was their response to me. Mm -hmm. So the survivor in me kind of shares that as my first response. The the social worker in me uh, really wants to emphasize listening and helping skills. So always having an uh, positive regard and and that way you're making a commitment to valuing the person as a human being with dignity you're not challenging them or pitying them you are taking a strength-based approach approach and acknowledging how brave they are um, and in keeping that positive regard you're respecting them you are being um, immediate. So focusing on the here and now as much as possible um, instead of getting into details about what's happened to them is Mm. really important. So survivors don't like a lot of questions, but they want to talk about how they might be feeling in the moment and how they can get through the moment. Got it. Um, Yeah. So, and as you're listening kind of making those mm-hmm, yes go on statements are really great again staying away from the questions you can add in some reflective statements like we've all learned our reflective listening skills those come in handy right now if you're if you're um, listening to a disclosure you also might want to summarize what the survivor is saying to make sure you're getting it right Because you might think you're hearing something and get the story totally wrong. And it also lets the survivor know, like, you're here with them. You hear what they're saying. You're making sure you're on the same page. Um, And keeping a non-judgmental attitude is really important. So even if you may have values that say um, that might shame the child in some way, it's really important to be neutral and keep thoughts about your own values and judgments to yourself, which may be really difficult to do, but it is important to, to stay away from any sort of shaming language, which might include asking the survivor what they're wearing or if they were, if they had any 
alcohol or under the influence of drugs or asking them why they didn't tell anyone sooner or why they continued to spend time with that person. Like all of those statements are going to go in that victim blaming category and not be appropriate. Got it. That makes sense. That's really helpful just to hear it, you know, said out loud and clarified. Um, So I'm just, you know, wondering, you had this really traumatic experience a lot of times people just want to forget about it and not talk about it. What inspired you to kind of do the opposite and do more research into, into it and turn it into a book? Yeah, that's a great question. I think I, I felt for a long time like I was alone and nothing like this had ever happened to anyone else. Um, And that was not true. I also, when I started to learn about the grooming process, it felt very spot on to my experience. It was like a weight had been lifted off me that my experience had been pinpointed into these six stages. Um, So I actually started typing grooming on Instagram as a hashtag. And that was my main way of connecting with people for research because Mm. people had shared grooming experiences and tagged themselves or they had posted educational articles. And when I had reached out, they shared that they had their own grooming experience. Um, So the internet really connected me with this community of people uh, and I, I tend to be more of an extrovert where I like to connect with people. So I think naturally I just wanted to, to share what I had been learning and the book seemed like a really great way to, to do that. That's awesome. I love how you're able to one, use your personal experiences for something good and to turn it into a strength and to help others and to just really communicate to others that they're not alone, that there are other people who have experienced this and there is hope, there is light at the end of the tunnel. And it's really using, you know, clinical skills on a macro level to be able to help like so many people with your book. I mean, countless people, you just, you're never going to know how many people read your book because um, they can give it to a friend and, um, and pass it on. So I think that's so, so powerful, Samantha. So thank you so much for doing that. Thank you. I think that the book also kind of legitimized the grooming process for a lot of people and um, for survivors to see it on paper, it has been helpful to be like, oh, wow, there's a book about it. It must be a real thing that happens. Mm, yes, yes. I'm curious, you know, what would you say to a social worker or to anyone really who wants to help others um, also establish like a way of, of sharing their story? Um, because this, you know, it helps people, but, you know, it also is an extra stream of income for you to supplement the work that you're doing, you know, on a full time basis. Um, you know, what would you say to that person if they're considering this um, and just kind of wondering, like, where do I start? I have this story, this personal story that I could use. You know, how would I start to use use that and build some credibility? 
Yeah, absolutely. I would definitely encourage anyone who has a story they'd like to share to to start wherever feels the most comfortable. It, it doesn't need to be a book. It could be an Instagram account, a podcast, a YouTube channel, a blog, some way that they are able to get their story out there and be heard, which is something that survivors often they aren't very heard or their stories are shut down or rejected by the legal system. And so it's really healing to share your experience and be heard by a community. Um, You asked where to start with writing a book. So I was connected with someone who had published a book um, during college and she Uh, recommended that I connect with this professor and he actually started something called the Creators Institute. So I was a part of their pilot program and so I went through a process with I think 12 other authors and everyone else was writing books about like marketing and business and then I was like I'm writing a book about the grooming process and (laughs) (laughs) I was quite different and um, so then I was able to self-publish it and, and sell it on Amazon and I sell it at some local bookstores here in Salt Lake City and in my hometown as well. So um, I definitely think that being a full-time social worker has a certain set of skills and whatever job you may be in, doing that same thing full-time, even if you absolutely love it like I do, it can't, it only works like one part of your brain, right? Like I am a therapist, so I'm using my clinical skills all day long, but sometimes I want to be heard and Mm -hmm. I want to engage in community or I want to teach or I want to talk with other social workers. And so this gives me an outlet to be more competent in my field as I do research on topics like grooming and how can I tailor this to this community that's asked me to speak and now I'm learning for my job becoming a better public speaker being more marketable to my company and diversifying my income so I think that it it really complements whatever full-time or part-time work you're doing to go out there and start to establish your own credibility because then you start to realize you don't you are not whatever company you're working for. Like you are yourself and you can go outside of that institution, whatever it may be, and still be worthy of whatever it is you're, you're trying to, trying to achieve. Yes, definitely. Uh, It sounds like you've done a really good job of making yourself your own personal brand. And it just makes you so much more marketable Um, Have you had any benefits or gotten any jobs or opportunities because of the book that you've written? Yeah, absolutely. So I've been on a a number of podcasts. I've um, traveled a little bit across the country to do some speaking engagements and I have, I've got a couple more lined up. So it really fills a need of like traveling, of building community, um, In my current job, I don't necessarily use the book as much. I kind of like to keep it separate, but it has gotten me the opportunity to do public speaking for my company on other topics, 
which mm-hmm. again, just gets me out of the, um, the clinical brain all the time and into a more public speaking role, which I think I just come back to my clinical skills even better when I kind of step outside of that for a minute. Right. Yes. That's so amazing. I'm so excited for you, Samantha. I can't wait to see what else you do in your career. Um, Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Where can people find you? And I know that the link is in the bio, but where can they connect with you? So I just have my Instagram account. It's samantha.csw.author. I don't have too much on there right now. I just made a separate Instagram account because I was like I should I should maybe separate my personal and my my professional Instagram um but yeah that's where you can find me and my email is also Samantha Leonard 515 at gmail.com if anyone wanted to reach out that way awesome thank you so much if you are interested in learning more about the grooming process and about the warning signs and everything that Samantha mentioned, definitely pick up her book. It sounds like it's really, really powerful. Um, And then Samantha, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounded like you wrote it. You wrote a story of one person who's fictional, but it incorporates the stories of the women or the people that you interviewed. Is that correct? That's correct. Yep. It's a composite fictional character. Love it. Love it. Thank you so much, Samantha. I'm loving everything that you're doing. Thank you so much for being a guest on the Social Workers Rise podcast. Thank you, Catherine. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Social Workers Rise. If you loved it, please open up your iTunes, tap the five stars, and leave a short note on why you love listening to the Social Workers Rise podcast. Also, if you want to share it on social media, I absolutely love it. You have me fangirling all over you. Take a screenshot and share it and tag me at Social Workers Rise on Instagram and Facebook. Lastly, just want to leave a little bit of legal disclosure here that the information, opinions, and recommendations presented in the Social Workers Rise podcast are for general information only, and any reliance on the information provided in this podcast is done so at your own risk. This podcast should not be used in place of professional advice, therapy, or clinical supervision. And with that, my friends, I'll talk to you next week.